Uh, whether you're here in Canterbury or whether you're in Whitstable, fantastic to be together. My name is Tom. I'm another pastor, elder of the church here. And if you've got a Bible, let's get straight into it. Uh, the Gospel of Mark. Mark. Amen. Mark chapter 10. Mark chapter 10. We are, are into our third week uh, in our looking at the second half of the Gospel of Mark. And the series title has been called Reality Check, uh, The True Cost of Following Christ. And uh, it has been a hard-hitting sermon series, I think you'll agree so far. I certainly find it for myself very challenging. Part one was Reality Check number one, which was if you coast your toast. I being a Christian means you can't just, you know, kind of uh, go into autopilot and never pray. Uh, reality check two last week was the whole thing of. Um, oh, I can't remember what it was now. What was it? Someone remind me. Abs- yeah, being seeker is not enough. Absolutely, which means that you need to be someone who's lays down anything. And for the case of the rich young ruler, it was money uh, that stands in the way of following Christ. Today is called Reality Check three. It's not about you, okay? It's not about you. We're going to see Jesus Christ on top form yet again today with a loving but firm challenge to his disciples who had got into the wrong mentality, we're going to see here, in a shockingly clear way that actually this whole kind of Christianity thing was secretly about me, about myself. And Jesus here is going to lovingly confront that. And he's going to say this, in effect, is you can be around Jesus, You can hear Jesus. You can even see Jesus at work. You can be coming to city. You can be listening in intently. But actually, if in your heart you are still kind of the center, then God, the loving surgeon, needs to go to work on our hearts here today yet again. So let's brace ourselves for part three of Reality Check, and let's read together from verse 32 of chapter 10. And they were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them. And they were amazed, and those who followed were afraid, okay? So if you've been feeling an increasing soberness and almost a sense of fear as we've been looking at the challenge of following Christ, guess what? You're in good company. They were actually afraid hearing the words of Jesus. And taking the twelve again, he began to tell them now for a third time, What was going to happen to him? So he's saying it again and again and again and again. Hey, listen, see, we are going up to Jerusalem and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes and they will condemn him to death, deliver him over to the Gentiles. They will mock him, spit on him, flog him and kill him. And after three days, he will rise. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, what do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, "Um, grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left in your glory. And Jesus said to them, you do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I'm baptized? And they said to him, we are able. And Jesus said to them, well, the cup that I drink, you will drink with the baptism with which I'm baptized You will be baptized, but to sit at my right hand or my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. And when the ten heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. Let's pray. Jesus, we love you, and we really want you to speak to us today. We love you. 
We crave your nearness. We thank you for your presence. Uh, We thank you uh, that you're here in this very room. We thank you that reverence and a certain appropriate almost fear of you is is not unbiblical. It's a kind of appropriate thing when we realize your greatness. And we just humble ourselves. We ask that you will teach us about pride. You will teach us about servanthood. You will show us if there's anything that you don't want us to have in our souls, that we will walk out of here knowing you have changed us, Lord. Amen. Amen. So I think there's three kind of steps that we see in this passage that we're going to walk through here today. First of all, we see that the reality of their hearts is revealed. Okay, you'd have to be a rocket scientist to spot that. The reality of their hearts is revealed, number one. But number two, we're going to then see that the reality check that Christ brings is shocking. It is shocking. But then thirdly, we're going to see that the real power is right there. Okay, so we're going to walk through those three steps and they'll become clear as we do that. First of all, though, let's jump in. The reality of their hearts is revealed. So we've seen here this third, what we call a passion prediction, which just means Jesus is predicting about the fact that he's going to die. He knows it's going to happen. It's kind of overwhelming. I don't know if you, when you know something awful is going to happen and you know what it's going to be like, it's kind of even worse, isn't it? Ignorance really kind of is bliss. But when you know something awful is going to happen, it can be really shocking. I was watching One Born Every Minute, um, the program about women giving birth, and this week they, they contrasted the woman who had given birth before and had been awful, who was freaking out because she knew the pain, and the woman who deliberately was a first time and hadn't ever even investigated it. She wanted to be, she was like, ah, serene. When you know the pain, it can easily get hold of you, right? When you know what it's going to be like. Jesus, because he's God, he knows the pain. He describes it. They're going to mock me. They're going to spit on me. Okay, so he so easily could have been freaking out knowing him as a man was going to die brutally being tortured for the sins of the world. This is the third time now he has been... He has been coming to them and bringing them and saying to them, listen, listen, I'm going to die in your place. I'm going to come to you and I'm going to do this for you. And there's a tenderness here. Do you sense his tenderness and his strength and the courage of the man is breathtaking. It's amazing. This is actually a man who knows what's going to happen to him in graphic detail. And yet, what do we see here? Do we see these disciples going, wow. That's amazing. Do we see them falling on their face in adoration and thanks? No. We see here verse 35. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. It's, 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 it's almost revolting, isn't it? It's kind of repugnant. Jesus is predicting his own death for them. And it's like they're not even listening. I mean, we're all guilty at times of not properly listening, let's be honest. But this is like, this is horrific. He's predicting his own death and yet they are arguing and considering themselves. They haven't heard Reality Check 3 that it's not about them. They think it's all about themselves. They probably would have had no idea their hearts were like this. And it just comes out. C.J. Mahaney, an American pastor, uses the illustration. He says, it's like two brothers who are in a house and someone breaks in and tries to kill them. And the father runs down gallantly, wrestles the guy to the ground and manages to secure him and, and tie him up. But in the process, the attacker stabs the father several times. 
And he's in a terrible way, and he could well die. And the son said, we've got to get to the hospital. But whilst they're getting into, into the hospital, the guy's bleeding everywhere. The sons start to argue about who gets to drive dad's car. It's that kind of feel. It's like, this really isn't the moment to be thinking about yourselves, guys. Your dad's dying in the car because of a courageous thing he's done. And this is this disgusting, to be honest with you, self-obsessive kind of thing that comes out of them in this moment of beautiful, beautiful servanthood of Jesus. We see this, and look at his response to them when they say, we want you to do whatever we ask of you. I mean, it's just unbelievable. What does he say? Does he, just, does he lose it? No, he says, verse 36, what do you want me to do for you? Patience of the man is unbelievable. And they said to him, Grant us to sit one at your right hand and one at your left in your glory. Now, what it's likely they're meaning here is this. They're still thinking of Jesus as a political Messiah. Yeah, one who will literally restore Israel politically from those Romans. And he will literally sit on a throne and become prime minister. That's clearly what they seem to be thinking. And they're saying, when you're the prime minister, can we be foreign secretary and, and home secretary? Is that okay? That seems to be what's in their mind. And Jesus says to them, verse 38, you do not know what you are asking. You've mis- you misunderstood this whole thing. You misunderstood it. And then he says this question, are you able to drink the cup that I drink? Are you able to be baptized in the way I'm going to be baptized? You see, in the Old Testament, these two phrases, these metaphors were used to describe suffering right judgment. You drank the judgment of God. You were drenched or drowned, baptized in the judgment of God. And he's saying here, are, are, you, are you able to do that? I'm going to do that for the world. Are you able to do that, my friend? Now, you think by this moment, now, surely, even the disciples will be like, yeah, good point. Yeah, you're right. I'm sorry. But what do they say? They say here, we are able we're able. I mean, it's just horrific. They're so deluded. They're so arrogant. They're so just on a different planet. And Christ here says to them, again, his, his mercy, he's wanting to do everything he can to stay with them. He says, well, the cup that I drink, you will drink. I, yes, you will suffer, not to actually save the world, but you will suffer in a way. And we know that James was the first Christian martyr. And John, the other guy, he was also a martyr on the island of Patmos, dying for his faith. So he's predicting something, actually, here, which is true. Yeah, you're kind of, sort of, sort of right. But And then he says something of great humility. He says, it's not actually up to me who's going to sit at my right hand and my left hand. He does what most of us don't do. When You know when someone says, oh, did you hear about X or Y? And if you didn't know, you tend to go, oh, yeah, yeah, I knew. Yeah, I knew. And you kind of don't want to be someone who's out of the loop. Jesus, just so contrasting, says, oh, I don't know. It's not up to me. It's up to my father. We're equal in divinity, but we have a different role. He's, he's an authority. I lovingly submitted to him. It's a glimpse into the Trinitarian way things work. Humility oozes out of him. He could have pretended he knew, but he doesn't do that. He says, not up to me. And then we see verse 41. And when the ten heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John, which means the cancer of self-obsession and pride has spread. You see that? It's not just in the two. They're indignant. Interesting word. They're indignant, which really means they're annoyed that they got there first. <laughs> ah, James and John, they got him first. Ah, that's what it kind of feels like. It is horrific. That's the scene. We see that 
Mark beautifully captures this difference between light and dark. First few verses, Jesus pouring his life out, predicting his suffering for them. And how do they repay it? How do they respond? A list of questions about themselves. So the first point I want to say is this, is that the reality of their hearts is revealed. This is the point that pure truth is standing before them. Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. He literally is pure truth before them, speaking nothing but truth. But they again and again do not respond well to truth. So our first little challenge is how are we doing as we hear truth? Particularly in the last few weeks, how have we been responding when we hear truth about our wallets, like last week, and how that can affect our spiritual temperature? How, do we do a James and John? Do we actually somehow just misunderstand it? And, oh, well, it doesn't really mean that. Or when the first challenge came a couple of weeks ago about prayer, do we get, yeah, well, yeah, but there's this situation in my life. Which means, do you see what I'm saying? How do we, do we actually, even when pure truth is just communicated to us clearly, do we kind of do what they do, which is just miss the wood for the trees and not really respond well? God doesn't want to trick us. He's trying to be as clear as he can because he loves you and he wants you to understand the reality check for you. But specifically, notice what they do, which is really helpful for us today to learn from, is they don't just kind of twist and respond badly to Scripture in general. They make it about themselves. You see that? that that's what they keep doing. Everything that they hear is not just generally misunderstood. They, they keep making it still about themselves, about me and my position and my place. And so we have to ask ourselves the question, is it a big deal? Is it a big deal? That Jesus predicts his own death, and then they ask lots of questions which show actually they've made everything about them. Is that a big deal, or am I being over the top? Yeah? Is it really? The shocking and horrific truth is this, is that what we see in the next two verses show us it's a really big deal. Because what Jesus does here, look with me, how he responds to them in verse 42 is so helpful. And Jesus called them to him. He's saying, okay, stop. Whoa, 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 whoa. Whoa, this is really getting scary now. All right. Oh, wow. Okay, here we are. The church is going to be born through you to save the world. And you really do not get this, do you? Okay, come, team talk time. Time out, guys. Come on, let's get, get a cup of coffee. Let's just focus again. Splash some water on your face. Whatever you have to do, listen. Look into my eyes. Listen to what I have to say to you. All right, let me explain a different way is what he's kind of trying to say, all right? Jesus called them to say, let me give you an illustration. He says this, you know that those who are considered, word, considered rulers of the Gentiles, that's non-Jews, lord it over them. Okay. In the world, leadership is about lording it over them. It means in the world, leadership is about making it about yourself. Yeah, making it about you establishing your throne, as it were. That's how the world works. And their great ones exercise authority over them. But, a huge but here, verse 43, it shall not be so among you, my loving disciples. Okay, I want there to be a contrast between how the world operates and how the church operates that is the difference between light and dark. And he gives a massive contrast with words you can tell he is using. He's trying to use the words that will most vividly paint a picture to them of what it's like to be in this new kingdom. 
that is different to the world. And look what he uses. He says here, it shall not be so among you. Whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. What's he saying there? He's saying this, your attitude is horrific and it is the polar opposite. It isn't just a bit off beam. It's the polar opposite of what I want you to have. And what he's saying is, he's, he's looking at these 12 disciples, and remember, he's saying, the world has a way of operating which makes life all about themselves, those Gentile leaders. And I am wanting to start a new world, a new creation, a new community within a community. And you are the beginning of it. Your DNA will be replicated throughout all time. So you have to get this right, oh disciples. All right? And what is that DNA? It's a DNA that is not making everything about themselves, but it's a DNA of a servant, a DNA of a slave. And, and the word here, servant, what it literally means is a table waiter. A table waiter. He's saying, okay, let me help you to get into your mind what I want this new world, this new creation, this new community that's going to transform the world to be like. I want you to be like table waiters. Okay, so not the ones who get served, but the ones who do the serving. The fancier the restaurant, the bigger the contrast between those who are being served and the table waiters who do the serving. That's who I want you to be. I want you to be servants. And then he just cranks it up, just in case they haven't got it, which is very, very possible. He then says, I want you to be a slave. It's a different Greek word. What's the difference between a servant and a slave? Well, a servant gets a job done. A slave is owned in a whole different way. Do you feel that? If you're a Christian, do you feel you're owned by someone in that shocking way? Because that's what I want you to feel. I want you to feel that you're a slave. A slave, it's shocking. Slave of all. You see, a slave is someone who is actually controlled by others. I don't want you to be someone who lives your own life as if you're the centre. I want you to be someone who's a servant and a slave. What's he talking about here? Let's put it in even simpler terms. Humility. He's talking about humility. He's saying, guys, I love you so much. But you have to understand this is about humility. And we all know the word humility. Most of us will yeah, have heard that. But it's like you have to realize this is it. You know, we see throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament, it's just possibly the biggest thing is humility. You see, again, James chapter 4 says, he gives grace to who? The humble. Psalm 138 says, although the Lord is on high, he respects the humble. I love that. He's on high, but he respects the humble. Do you want God's respect? I do. Psalm 10 says, he hears the desires of the humble. Charles Haddon Spurgeon famously said, be not proud of race, grace, face, or place. Get away with words. Yeah? He said, don't let those things be the things that you're proud of. Let humility mark you out. Jonathan Edwards, another old guy from the past, amazing guy. He said, nothing so sets you out of the clutches of the devil as humility. Francis Chan, an American pastor, says this. I love this. 
The point of your life is to point to him. You might want to write that one down. That's a classic. The point of your life is to point to him. That's why we exist. That's a shocking, what? My point of my life is to point to God. Yeah. The point of our life is to point to God. Jesus here is dreaming a dream. You can almost just sit in this, but he's dreaming a dream with these guys of just imagine what could happen in the Middle East and beyond if you become an army of servants and slaves who get the point of your life is to point to God. Just imagine in East Kent, just imagine the impact of an army of men and women who are servants to the core, slaves to the core. That's, that's the dream he's starting to almost taste. But then there's a reality check. What are the words they've just said that have just come out of their mouth? We want you to do whatever we ask, please. We are able. We want to sit at your right hand and your left. Oh dear. Is that the words of a humble people? It's the words of a proud people. Just as much as the Bible lifts up humility as the most sweet of all characteristics to have, the most beautiful, the Bible is also just as terrifyingly clear about pride. It says this in Proverbs 16, everyone whose heart is proud is an abomination to the Lord. That's scary, isn't it? Just me or is that scary? Proverbs 18 says pride is sin. Can't really be any more blunt. 1 Timothy 3 says pride is from the devil. It's really shocking. It's deliberately shocking to help us understand this. A guy called Francis Frangipan, amazing guy, unusual name. He says this, listen to this, he says, God cannot entrust his kingdom to anyone until he's been broken of pride. Listen to this, because pride is the armor of darkness itself. That's scary. It's scary, and it's true. And the thing is, the problem is this, is guys, is if, if you're anything like me, I know that and I hear that, but I still make this world about me, if I'm honest. I can do. Another Francis, Francis Chan, he's, he uses a brilliant illustration. He says, imagine this. Imagine you're an extra in a film, and for two-fifths of a second, you're in a shot with hundreds of others, and the back of your head's there, right? Two-fifths of a second, back of your head, and hundreds and hundreds. Imagine if you hired out a cinema... <laughs> Sorry, it's not funny. And you invite all your friends, your neighbours, your workmates, your family. Say, come on, you've got to see this film. It's all about me. Come on, come on, guys. Down the cinema, down the Odeon. And you're all sitting there. It's like, oh, this is going to be great. And then you know, halfway through, you jump and go, did you see it? Did you see it? Did you see the two-fifths of a second in the back of my head? Did you see it? What? My friend's nutter. This film's not about you. How do you, you? How on earth could you ever think this film is about you? <laughs> Guys, the movie of life is not about us. It's about him. It's about the creator. We have two-fifths of a second on this earth. We're like vapor, it says in James. Go on here. Go on next. Amazing. Whitney Houston, 48, dead. Gone. She's before the creator of the universe. It's going to happen, guys. 
And then we'll really know that it wasn't about us. It's not about us, but we make it about us. If we look from start to finish, the whole of the story, the movie of life is about God. God, God, God creates all things. God calls a man called Abraham. God sets a people free. God sends his son to earth. Jesus, the son of God. And we're in this brief moment now between Jesus who's ascended and his return when everyone will see clearly beyond belief that it's always been and will always be about God. The movie is not about us. It's about God. And the trouble is, is that pride, we make it about us, it is so unbelievably destructive. So subtle and yet so destructive. James 4 tells us this, that God opposes the proud, which means this, if you're proud, if we're proud, it means that we cut ourselves off from God. It means pride leads to relational breakdown because we isolate ourselves. Pride leads to division, disunity. Pride leads to depression when we fail because we take ourselves too seriously. Pride leads to churches being under-resourced because there aren't servants available to serve. Pride leads to churches being under-resourced because there's not enough money because proud people don't tend to give. Pride leads to churches being under-resourced in terms of prayer because only humble people pray. If you know you can't do it, you pray. If we don't pray, it's because of pride. It's because we think we do it. It's, it's always pride. I loathe pride in my life. So you know that. I loathe it. And I, I can honestly say this. Whenever I see envy and jealousy and, and just a sense of things not being right in my soul, when I trace it right back, it, it's always pride. It's always making myself the center. Making myself the center. Making myself the center. I don't want to get to heaven and review my life with the creator and him say, so you said this is all about me, but let's look at the last week of your life. Let's look at your wallet. Let's look at your time. Let's look at the last month. I don't want that to happen for any of us. I want us to... Come before him and him say, well done, good and faithful servant. You actually did make it about me. You actually did make it about me because pride is so huge. And you might be sitting there thinking, well, how do I know, Tom? How do I know if pride's an issue? Often it's subtle, isn't it? In this book, The Emotionally Healthy Church, great, a great book, a very painful book, but a very good book. There's a table in it where he, this author, um, has spotted as a pastor of many years telltale signs in his own life, mainly, of when pride is there and how it expresses itself versus humility. There's 18 of them. I've just given us four. Let's just, just quickly, if we have the table up, that'd be helpful. Okay. If we're proud, we tend to focus on the positive, strong, successful parts of myself. But humility means I am aware of the weak, needy, limited parts of who I am. And I freely admit failure. If we're proud, it can mean we naturally focus first on the flaws, mistakes and sins of others. Whereas humility means we're aware of our own brokenness and have compassion and slow to judge others. Pride can express ourselves through giving our opinion a lot, even when not asked. Humble tend to be slow to speak and quick to listen. Proud can be those who tend to like to control most situations, whereas the humble tend to be those who can let go and give people opportunity to earn my trust. Anything like me, unfortunately, 
you can see yourself in a certain column rather more than the other one. That's the reality often. And I, I think it's just even fascinating that just this week I had an email from a brother who knew nothing of what I was going to preach. And he said, Tom, I just want to prophesy. He said, I feel that God is taking us on a painful journey as a church, but as a result of obedience, his glory will shine through us. And one area I particularly felt God show me was that he wanted to work in was the area of pride. I think God wants us just to check our hearts today. Say, Lord, how am I doing? It's very rarely an obvious thing. It's normally a subtle thing. So you're probably sitting there thinking, great, well, I feel brilliant, Tom. Thank you very much. Built up for the week. Hey, listen, let me ask you a question. Chin up, all right? Is Jesus loving or is he cruel? He's loving. Does Jesus surprised at their pride or did he know it? He knew it. Jesus doesn't want to crush us. But as a loving father, he does want to convict. It's very easy just to stay still. He wants us to be transformed and changed. So this is the point. And I get really excited about this. There's one more verse, isn't there, in this particular bit here. This is probably my favorite verse in the Bible. I love it. Because of what we don't need, my friends, and you can amen with me. You know what we do not need is someone else telling us that if we were just better and more loving and more servant-hearted, the world would be a better place. Yeah, we kind of know that. We, kinda, we don't need another political organiser like Marx saying, if you just gave everything away and just served each other and just loved each other, then everything would be better. We don't need someone else to tell us that. We need power to do it. Amen? We do. We don't need another religious leader like Muhammad ultimately saying, if you are really good and love and serve other people, then you'll change the world. We know that. We don't need it to be told. We need power to do it. We don't need another philosopher, like a Buddha or a Confucius, saying, if you were just kinder and more loving and servant-hearted towards one another, the world would be a better place and everything would be okay. We know that. We need power to do it. Amen? Amen. Well, we haven't got any. Sorry, off we go. No, we have. Verse 45. Circle it. Highlight it. Love it with me. Verse 45. So he said this. He's painted the picture. They're sitting there thinking, I'm rubbish. You're right. Even when you were predicting your own death, I was thinking about myself. How shocking, how horrific. This is awful. I'm doomed. Take someone else. I'm rubbish. And Jesus says, guess what? You are, but it's all right because I'm not. And he says this in verse 45. For, every word counts, for even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Hallelujah for verse 45. It's there. Woo! It's there. What's he saying? Someone's like, what the heck? Why is he excited about this? Listen, he's saying, right, I've given you actually a humanly impossible thing to do. You can't do it. That's where you need to be, but you can't do it. The world will be a better place. The world yearns for us all to be like this. Whether you're a philosopher, a religious leader, or a political organizer, whoever you are, we all know this is how things should be. But only I, Jesus Christ, can give you the solution how you do it. Only I give you the power to do it. And he says this in verse 45. The Son of Man came not to be served. Let that sink in. When I've asked you to be servants and slaves, don't make the mistake that you are somehow serving me as if I need anything. 
So he just lays that down very clearly. I don't want you thinking, oh, God needs me to serve on his behalf. He is not saying that. Acts 17, talking about God says, he is not one who needs to be served with human hands as if he needed anything. He alone gives life and breath and everything. He's just been very clear. There's a little clue here in the word, the phrase son of man, which for most of us does this. In the Old Testament, son of man meant one thing, God. Daniel 7. Son of man, ironically, in the use of the word man, it's all about God. It means the creator. The creator who made this planet we're on now, planet Earth, that currently now is hurtling around a giant ball of fire, one million times our size, i.e. the sun, in case you know what I'm talking about. We are hurtling around it right now at 67,000 miles an hour and yet have no sense of movement. That creator is standing before them. And he's saying, let's just be really clear. First of all, I don't need your help. I'm not asking you to help me out. (laughs) Okay? I kind of can do it. The Son of Man, God, came not to be served. Little footnote, we, we are his servants in the sense that he's the boss. Yes. But we're not his servants in the sense that he needs us to help him. Many people depend on their servants and they would fall apart. No, no. And that's just, he's clarifying that. So I'm really not asking you to do that because I know if I'm honest with you, if it was in your hands, it would be disastrous. The son of man came not to be served. I'm not putting my eggs in your basket, brother. I'm sorry. But, and this is just the most amazing thing. There's three words I want you to take out of this room. It is this. I didn't come to be served. I came, but to serve. I don't know if it gets any better than that. The creator of everything. Standing before them, he says, I've come here to serve you. Do you know he serves you now? He served you this day. He serves you now. He will serve you for eternity. Amazing. Why? Does, why? I'll tell you why. Because he gets the glory when he serves. And he will not share his glory with anyone else. You know, I, we as an eldership of an amazing PA, she's called Christy DeRobeck. She's fantastic. And she serves us. And, you know, it's a great experience. She's very, very good. There's many employees who do, but I just want to particularly just say she's serving us. And, and in that moment, she gets the glory, rightly so, because she's serving and she's doing brilliantly. And so she does get the glory because she's the one that's doing the serving. John Piper says this, God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. When are we most satisfied? When we know we're being served. When we feel almost awkward because we're being so lavished upon. When you understand that God himself came not to take, but to give. This is to 12 men who even when Jesus has talked about being butchered, for them, they've then replied with arrogance and pride. What does he do? He then just covers it with grace and says, but I've come here not for you to serve me and help me out because I really need it, but to serve you. To serve you. That's the gospel. (laughs) It's amazing. When you become a Christian, it doesn't mean that you are now a benefactor to God. It means that he is a benefactor to you. When you become a Christian, it doesn't mean that you now help him out. It means he helps you out. 
When you become a Christian, it doesn't mean that you become ultimately a servant to God, helping him because he needs your help. It means that he becomes your servant. And as you know and as you realize how much he serves you and serves you and serves you, it feels so almost inappropriate. And yet the satisfaction brings him glory. As you realize in your life, every moment of every day, I am being served by the king of eternity. How inappropriate is that? It cannot do anything but bring glory to him. He's saying, I want you to be people who you can never be in your own strength. So the world knows that there's someone helping you to do that. The king who comes to serve. The king who comes not to just tell you what to do, which the whole world does. Every religious system, every philosophical system tells you what to do. He alone says, that's kind of the right direction. Let me serve you so you are able to do it. I just don't know if it gets any better. How does he serve us? Infinite number of ways. But let's make it applicable here. He sets us free. He serves us by setting us free from the pride and the self-obsession that these disciples were in the grip of. And you know what, friends? We can be in the grip of. And if you don't know Christ, the Bible lovingly says you are in the grip of. That's what it says. It says, it says here, actually, we need to be set free. You see, how does he set us free? He says this phrase here, to give his life as a ransom. What's ransom got to do with it? Ransom is like hostage language, isn't it? Ransom. And in our, in our thinking, we think of ransom as a negative thing. We think of, well, you know, it shouldn't be happening. And it can, in the worldly sense, of course, mean that. But actually, here, Jesus is using it in an appropriate and beautiful way. You see, a ransom is the price paid for a prisoner of war who is enslaved and can't free himself. The whole, piece, the whole point of it is that you, if you're that person, can't set yourself free. Or it's the price paid for someone catastrophically in debt. And the whole point is if you're in debt, you, you can't get yourself out. It's this kind of image. It's, it's the price of a slave who wants to be set free but has no money. It's the price that someone will pay for that. And what he's saying here is this, is that the way that the Son of Man is going to serve you is by paying the price, the ransom, the price, the cost, for you to be set free from your pride. Knowing that they can't do it themselves. He's saying here, I will come to serve you ultimately in setting you free from that which you're trapped in. That which you're trapped in, your own sinfulness, your own self-obsession. I will pay the price. You see, the reality is this, guys. Any relationship where you love someone who's even a tiny bit needy, there's a price to be paid. It's true, isn't it? Think about it. If you love someone, but they're actually quite needy, when you spend time with them, you want to spend time with them because you love them, but you know that you're giving out, they're filling up, and you're getting drained. Or with kids. I love my kids so much. They're beautiful, gorgeous little things. But as parents, you're giving out the whole time. This is, this is how you act. This is what you do. Let me wash up for you. Let me prepare a meal for you. Let me iron your clothes. Let me, let me read you another story. Let me tell you off because I love you. And you've got to learn to be. You're giving out, giving out, giving out. And actually, as Tim Keller says, all true love is substitutionary. All true love involves a cost. Actually. You, you have to give something in order to be in that relationship. And Jesus is saying here, you have no idea how needy 
you actually are. But I love you. And so for me to be in this relationship, I need to give you something so much more than just a bit of time or a bit of emotional energy. I need to give you something that's going to set you free from who you are, which is proud people, oh disciples. I need to give you something. I need to do something to set you free from who you are. And we have to ask ourselves, what's that price as we come in for a landing? What's that price? Is it time? Is it money? <sighs> no. It's this word here. To give his life. To give his life. I'm going to die to pay the price for you to be set free from your bondage, you're being trapped, you're being enslaved to your own pride. And most of you probably don't even think it's a big issue. And yet my entire life, the creator of the universe, is going to be on the line. I'm going to give my life on that cross. And at the cross, what we realize and what we hear when Jesus went to the cross, in a way our brains can't even really compute, the Bible tells us, it says, Romans 5.8, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. He died for the proud. He died because my pride was put on him. That which trapped me, that which enslaved me was placed on him. 1 Peter 2 says this, he says, he says, in his body, he bore my sins. In his perfect, humble body, my pride was pressed into him at the cross. 1 Peter 3 says this, he says, once and for all, he died. Just once and for all. The just, i.e. the humble, Jesus, for the unjust, for the proud. He died because of my pride and your pride put on him. That's why he died. And when he rose from the dead, it sounded a trumpet that now we could be those that were rescued. Rescued from that which held us. That which held us in its grip. Sometimes it's a little hard to get our mind around, isn't it? Creator dying for me because of my pride, which I don't even often see, but you're saying it's a bit, this is a mind blowing. You know that couple? Do you remember that couple in the news? They're a white couple and they went to, um, they, they had a boat and they sailed. And everyone said, don't go anywhere near Somalia. There's pirates. But they did. And do you remember they got taken hostage? And um, they seemed a really lovely couple. And it was terrifying because um, they're, captors thought they were rich they thought oh they're English couple they must be rich and they said I think it was about five million pounds they said you've got to come up with Whew, can you imagine how trapped they felt imagine the horror we don't have any money and we know the British government's policy is we don't negotiate it's a tiny taste of what we, we need to realize what it's like to be trapped in sin and trapped in pride as an example of that Imagine how they would have felt, how trapped, how actually the cost for them to be released would have been utterly unpayable. Do you know, that's what the Bible tells us. That's what Jesus is saying here. He's saying to make it the movie not about you and for you to realize it's not about you and for you to live a life supernaturally where it's not about you, it is totally beyond you. You're trapped, actually. You're trapped in, in that place. But, but this is the amazing thing. Just imagine if those pirates sent a message to the UK and said, actually, we don't want five million pounds. We've changed our minds. We want you, David Cameron, to come over to Somalia and we will execute you. 
And in exchange, this couple will be released. Just imagine that. Just imagine then if David Cameron, all of his advisors, like, of course, this is preposterous. She goes home, cycles home, has a chat with his wife. This is a situation. Has a chat with his kids. It's a situation, guys. And in the morning, he gives the order and he gets on a plane. Just imagine if he then lands in Somalia, walks over, says, okay, take me and kill me, but make sure you set them free. Just imagine if that happened. Imagine if you were that couple and all of this could have been avoided. Just imagine how you would feel as you walked out and got on that plane there, the news is in, they've done it. Imagine how you feel. Gratitude beyond belief. Humility beyond belief. Respect, adoration. My life will never be the same. My life will always be owned now in a right way. I'm not my own. The Bible tells us we're not our own. You were bought at a price. Imagine the headlines. What would the who would they be about? Would they be about the couple or would they be about the one? That'd be about the one. The movie is not about you. And that's not to be negative and harsh, it's to be loving. Because, you know, when that starts to percolate our souls and we start to repent of our pride and say, God, help me by your grace, you've rescued me once ultimately, rescued me again and again from the delusion. You know what? It's the most wonderful thing. We're designed to actually function with him at the center. That's where we find true joy, is where we forget ourselves increasingly. Go, you're the one that paid the ransom. I can never be the same. And there's one last thing it says here, last two words. Did he do this for good, moral people who went to Sunday school? What are the last two words he says here? He did this unbelievable act for many. For many. If you don't know Christ here today, those words are for you. They're for you. If you know you're, you're not a Christian, but you're looking in, and you think, I can identify at least to some degree with that pride thing, and you're telling me it's a big deal because God's so humble, and I need to get right with him, let those words flood your soul with joy for many. Not just for a little few who are really good and kind of deserve it, for the worst of sinners. You may have done things in your life you are so not proud of, but God says here, I came to die to give my life for many. And today, today he's offering you the chance to be set free from something you may not have even realized you were, and to know God. See, at the cross, Christ was bathed in my pride and your pride. And in exchange, we were given freedom from it. And the ability to stand before God as if we'd been humble all of our lives. That's the scandal. Do you know that? I was reading the Old Testament this week. And God was speaking to Solomon, king, saying, if you love me with all of your heart, then I'll bless you. And if you don't, then I'll curse you. And I started doing what we often do, which is go, oh, better try hard then. <sighs> Got to try hard to love God with all my heart. And then I thought God say, uh, no. There was a better Solomon that came after that. A true Solomon. His name is Jesus. 
And he was fully obedient, Tom. <laughs> and now I want to give you a fresh revelation. His obedience, his humility, despite all your pride, means that I can now look anew as if you were always humble. You can come before me knowing the gift of righteousness, right standing before God. And as I sat in my little shed and went from a place of, oh, got to try, tears flowed. I went in for breakfast, a happy man. Let's open the Bible, kids. That's some good truth in here. Daddy's so weak, so proud. But guess what? I've been given the righteous gift of Jesus. I've been given, I've been given righteousness, which means it's as if I was always humble. And I'm, I'm not a humble man. I'll be struggling with that to the day I die. But Jesus, I receive afresh the truth that because you did brilliant in the exam, I get the gift as if I took it. That's what he's talking about here. And so this is the twist. We started this morning by saying, it's not about you. As if it was a challenge, and it is a challenge. But we finish by saying, it's not about you. Do you understand that? It's not about you, as in don't make this center of thing about you. Be someone who the whole of your life is aware that Christ dying for you humbles us, changes us. He's the ransom payer. He's the spirit giver. He's the hope bringer. <laughs> it's all about him. And so it, it's, it's not about me. You see that? There's two sides of the coin. When we think we've got to try hard and we think we've got to try and really pull up our socks, we remember it's not about me. It's about Jesus' power. It's about the cross and where Jesus took my pride. So I got the gift as if I had been far better than I ever was. Is it just me or is that just the most brilliant news ever? And it makes me want to be someone who lives a life about him. Not because I have to be, but because it's the only appropriate response. Like that couple. They would just, ever they heard the word David Cameron again, they'd just be like, how much more has Christ done for us? Yeah. This is the only source of a real life, of true humility, and therefore transformation of communities through a, an army of men and women who know it and live it.